0: Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast. Life Lessons and Conversations from the Garden. Hi there, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is season three, episode five. Today's guest is Nancy Lawson, author of The Humane Gardener. I came across Nancy's work about four or five months ago um, when I was looking for books to read on my library's digital lending service, and her book kept coming up as a recommendation. And Around that time, I was also reading uh, Bringing Nature Home by Dr. Talamy and kind of trying to reevaluate some of my own um, gardening principles. I was having some difficulties seeing a lot of advice on Instagram regarding gardens and bugs and pests, and it was just kind of bothering me greatly. And so I think the book came to me at a great time. Um, And I definitely gleaned a lot of great information from her book, um, trying to apply some things in my own garden. And I feel like we do a pretty good job of being humane gardeners, um, gardening naturally, um, organically, and and that sort of thing. But it definitely felt like there were a lot of things we could just take to another level. Um, and what I loved about Nancy's book is that this is not a one size fit, all you must be all and end all, <laughs> be a humane gardener. You can learn and take steps to just be better. And the other good thing about this was she also gives examples throughout the book of people who have done some pr- tremendously awesome, um, uh, methods and of humane gardening, uh, in their own gardens, whether they have, um, you know, live in a, a mobile home, and have a small space to garden or whether they have millions of dollars and and a very extensive budget. So she gives a lot of examples. She has examples on her blog, uh, humanegardener.com as well. Um, I I think this interview is something you all are going to learn something from, and I hope you guys stick with it and um, let me know or let Nancy know if you have any questions at all about anything, I'm sure Nancy would be help, uh, be excited to help you out with that. Um, so with that, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, uh, or Stitcher or wherever else you listen. And if you want to drop me an email at the garden path podcast at gmail.com, and you can also find me on Instagram at the garden path podcast. Enjoy the episode and I will talk to you later. All right, well, uh, yeah, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Um, I saw your book about maybe four or five months ago. It kept coming up in my digital library lending feed for, um, you know, gardening-type books, and I kept, like, just kind of going past it. And then one day I'm like, well, I'm going click this. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, this is very intriguing, mostly because I kept seeing and being very uncomfortable this summer with how much... Um, Bug averse people are in gardening. (laughs) Yes. So, I guess if you would like to just kind of do an introduction of who you are, where you're located, and where your garden is, and there's an introduction about humane gardening in your book and kind of go from there.
1: Sure. Um, Well, so I'm Nancy Lawson and I garden in Sykesville, Maryland, which is um, between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And I have been a gardener for about 20 years, and uh, purchased our house in 2000. And so very shortly after that, I became interested in native plants and their effect on wildlife. And I was working for um, about 17 years at the Humane Society of the United States as an editor and writer and um, worked a lot with wildlife biologists. So I got kind of a, uh, a taste of sort of the effects that our um, misguided landscaping routines have on the larger misunderstood animals like deer and raccoons and uh, rabbits. And, right. And then the little mini fauna, of course, as you mentioned, the insects um, and how much we tend to sort of dismiss and malign them. Uh, I learned through my ventures in the native plant world, so I wrote this book to kind of bring those two worlds together um, as a plant person and an animal person. I saw um, kind of somewhere along my journey that a lot of a lot of people in these two realms don 't always cross over there 's not a lot of collaboration sometimes uh, among people who consider themselves plant people and people who are animal advocates. And um, that became frustrating to me. I, I
0: definitely agree. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, okay. So you said you've been gardening
0: about 20 years or so, but um, in your book, you talk about your father being a plants man. Um, and so you were kind of around plants and gardens for a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, So when you I mean, I know when I'm a kid, I'm pretty bug averse and animal, like, Scared of things and it 's definitely been something that 's evolved over time. Uh, my appreciation for the balance of, of nature um, how did how were, How were you as a child, and how did your your dad influence you at all?
1: yeah um, well, as a kid, we also went on a lot of camping trips so my my dad was um, a plant pathologist, and his main um, specialty was in the more uh, garden house plant greenhouse raised plants area. Mm-hmm. He worked for the USDA, um, but he carved out his entire front lawn uh, into gardens, which wasn't really <laughs> done at the time. And we had a little backwoods that I thought of as a forest that he created. And so I did. I was really into like watching ants and all of those things for a while. And of course, as I got older got more interested in teenage things like boys and stuff and kind of forgot about it. <laughs> and, um, but I, I think that er, when you get that early grounding, so to speak, you really don't ever lose it. It's always becomes a part of you. And, uh, so while I was working at the humane society, um, after I'd been in newspapers and I just happened to get this job at the humane society. And, I started, there were two things that happened. Um, I I started working on this project to write about uh, the conflicts that people were having with Canada geese. And
0: right,
1: yep. yeah, and um, and learned that so much of that could be resolved with plants because the geese like to hang around all these communities that have, mowed down turf grass that abuts lakes and such and Mm -hmm. they don't like it when you put buffers because they don't have a quick escape into the water and that just made so much sense to me so that was one thing um that made me start thinking about gosh if we could just if we could just think a little bit more about the animals in our midst when we're planting um everyone would get along so much better and then I had these early experiences in my own garden when we didn't have much hair yet. You know, we had like uh, some invasive shrubs and <laughs> a couple trees and and two acres of grass and so what when I would put things in my little first garden attempts, um one year, I loved sunflowers and I had sunflowers, and then something came and started eating them. I don't even remember what it was, but I kept trying to idea it. and in the process. I went down this rabbit hole and I found this document about sunflower seed and how um, how a lot of the sunflower um, growers were killing birds that were eating sunflower seed mm. in their fields, and then some of that sunflower seed was ending up in bird seed bags. <laughs> Right. And being shipped to all of us to fill our bird feeders. And I was just like, we don't make any sense at all. What are we doing? And there again, we need to have the seeds growing in our own yards um, as much as we can instead of outsourcing. <laughs> right. Hurting <Right. laughs> these birds to help these birds. We're just negating everything, right? right. So
0: that makes that, sense.
1: <laughs> yeah made me start thinking about what I called at the time like humane landscaping and um and then I just sort of started started doing it uh privately and individually and the more I got into it the more I wanted to spread the word and started writing columns about it for our magazines and stuff
0: so when you you were writing those columns did I mean you're obviously targeting a particular audience who's going to have the same kind of thought process as you but um what kind of uh, reactions did you have about connecting these two, the, the plantings and the wildlife? Um, was it generally good, or did you have any kind of negative pushback? Um,
1: from the readers, We didn't. I didn't really get negative pushback. And I would say that they were mainly general public, because it was 500,000 people who, a lot of them signed up for our magazines because um, they were supporting our efforts to fight puppy mills and things like that. So generally... Okay. Yeah, compassionate people, but maybe didn't know a lot about this subject. I would say that that's typical of uh, animal welfare in general. Um, there's a lot of focus on, on the animals, you know, that we can't see who are being raised for, uh, who are being raised inhumanely. um so factory farming and puppy mills and all these things that are super important but what people don't realize is there's so many animals right outside our door that we're not we can't necessarily see either unless we take a closer look and and so the reactions they tend to it you know people tend tended to early on kind of think that i was doing something cute you know (laughs) gardening you know flowers and Um, even if they're, I mean, even some of my really good friends, um, and, uh, so it's taken a while to break through that. And I think some of the, some of these statistics that we can cite, some of these things that we can talk about with these lesser known animals really surprise people, um, and really make them want to help, but it's getting that information out. That's, you know, that's, that's a challenge.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would never would have thought about, I mean, Probably if I'd thought a little deeper about the sunflowers and and, and it, it right. just makes sense, but I yeah I wouldn't have given it two thoughts. But right, right. It's those little things that uh yeah the general public probably doesn't really uh, acknowledge.
1: Yeah, I just found out about it from a random Google search. You know, I'm always going <laughs> down these random strings, and yeah, so it's no wonder people aren't exposed. You just wouldn't make the connection unless you happen to hear it from somebody or read it. Right. So
0: when you were you got your yard and you were beginning to transform it, um, you wrote about some mistakes you made, um, removing native plants when you probably shouldn't have, and identifying plant or animals or bugs (laughs) (laughs) incorrectly. Um, So I guess what did you learn from that experience that you would kind of tell other homeowners who may either just purchasing the property, or maybe they 've been here for ten years, and they still have their you know typical landscape, um, but they 're wanting to start maybe some humane gardening what What would you suggest for them to do
1: Yeah, so I think the most important thing is to question your own assumptions, question the cultural assumptions that you make, so when you first do see something like that, like you see. Uh, an insect you've never seen before or you see something has nibbled your plant don't assume it's bad don't assume you even know what it is you know a lot of the conflicts and a lot of the um uh sort of uh insults that get hurled at wildlife chemically and otherwise um, happen because people misidentify things or they they think that um a plant's going to be destroyed or the house will be taken over when actually a lot of these animals are really really helpful in the environment and you know there are checks and balances um and so i would say first question your assumptions and then try to just view the world from the perspective of other species and remember that we're not the only you know we, we are the dominant species on the planet now and so when people say Oh, there's too many deer, or there's too many rabbits or this or that. <laughs> it's sort of just sort of accepted as like, oh yeah, there are. you know people start talking about it and then they think it's true, and instead of thinking, well wait a minute here, like wh- compared to what compared to whom and um why are there why are they here, and what can we do to help them or mitigate conflict with them
0: right well, it's so- like. The deer, their population is expanding because there's no predators, and humans have killed right. those predators. So yeah, it's a domino effect. Right, right. And um, So, oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah. I'm sure you always hear people say, also, like, I have a brown thumb. I, I I kill plants and things like that, and they have to follow these certain exacting recipes. I mean, I certainly did when I started, and um enough. And plants were here something like 700 million years before we got here, right? So they knew what to do. We're fine without us. And I think in the effort to sort of cultivate one house plant and potentially see it not do so well, people assume they're not going to be able to do this. But I think it's innate in all of us that we can and things can grow themselves. So if you're a new homeowner, it's important to sort of take an inventory of what's already on your property and first to see who's visiting, see what's growing. And there's so many great, you know, plant ID, Facebook groups and, and things that you can turn to, insect identification. Uh, so now's a really great time to be starting. There's a lot more than when I first started um, support and information for people.
0: Oh, yeah, it's a completely different uh atmosphere. I think the last five to seven years, it's kind of exploded. There's a lot more information available.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: So you talked about people like identifying what's already on their property, but I think a lot of people would say, well, that's a weed. I've been taught that's a weed and um, why should I keep it? Um, What's the benefit to it? How do you, how do you talk to these people or the people you interact with? How have you, help yeah. them understand the benefits of keeping particular plants that, I mean, some of them, yes, truly may be an invasive weed, right. <laughs> right. But others are probably native plants that have, that are supporting particular wildlife. Um,
1: yeah. Are you battling that
0: resistance?
1: Well, first I, I try to break down those terms in general as board weed. It's impossible to avoid sometimes, but people know, okay, all of these plants are invasive. They belong somewhere in the world. They help somebody somewhere. Right, right. Um, Well, I was going to say, so the idea that weeds, um, the term weed is is sort of one that I try not to use very much because it's so confusing. And Mm -hmm. um, even if a plant is invasive or introduced here, it does help somebody in some part of the world. So and you're trying to identify a plant, and you have that in mind, then you'll be a little bit more open to understanding that a lot of these plants that are sprouting that were dormant in your seed bank, or that birds are coming and bringing into your yard, are actually native plants. And some of the ones that are really beneficial to native bees, caterpillars, are the ones that get mowed down so much, like violets, uh, Fleabanes, um, common evening primroses, goldenrods—you know which people mistake for um, ragweed—and ragweed, um, these little uh, fall, small fall asters. These things that are across the continent. And um, so, when I talk to people about these these plants, milkweed was once actually very recent, until very recently. Um, Maligned in the same way as these other other plants that tend to sprout and thrive on their own and uh, and so that's one way to kind of introduce people to this idea. like the la- the, the, the lack of concern or or um, affection for milkweed led to this point for monarch butterflies which rely on it and don't have enough of these plants anymore. And then there's all of these other relationships in nature with these other native plants that we've tended to underappreciate that haven't even been fully studied yet. You know, there's specialist bees for the violets, who can only gather their pollen from, from violets for their young and specialist bees for the primroses and golden rods. And, um, and so, and there's caterpillars who need those plants um and don't eat anything else and so that's where I start um with that and and it can be a joy to see these plants coming up and not know what they are let them go and then see once they start to flower just how many creatures are coming to eat them
0: yes I uh I definitely agree I uh have some false nettle that I've just wow. had of grow around and I really was trying to attract red admirals and yes. um well, something definitely came and used it and rolled itself up, but I got the Caterpillar one to kind of emerge one day. So I could see, I had to wait till evening for it to come out. And and now I can't figure out what kind of Caterpillar it is because it's definitely not a Red Admiral. And um, <laughs> and I just kind of had a brief conversation with my husband. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. And he's like, you know, there's just, a, you know, everybody says online that the false nettle will be used by like Eastern commas, Red Admirals right. and um, question marks. But I'm like, well, something else is using this. And he's like, well, there's a ton of plants that don't really, you know, or animals that use plants that just people don't know about. Scientists haven't studied it. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. So,
1: <laughs> right. So. Like a little moth. Right. Yeah,
0: but, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. And it
0: moves so fast. I was like, oh, my goodness. Really? <laughs> yes, was it, it was tiny? very fast.
1: Was it a tiny one? Yeah, or it was, was pretty tin tiny.
0: Um, oh. It was probably not even an inch long. Um. And it wasn't quite an inchworm-like movement, but it was very speedy. I mean, I've never seen a caterpillar like that. So.
1: Oh, that's so cool. I just planted three false nettle summer, Um, so I'm excited to see who comes. Yeah. I think we might have some in our woods, but, but sometimes I'll plant just so I can get to know that native plant really well so that when I know exactly what it is, Yeah, you know? right. That's- <laughs>
0: yeah, these, we, our, our sprout naturally down by our pond, but our general yard is kind of very mesic and moist, so it'll sprout mm. wherever you leave it. Right. <laughs> so I've been trying to leave some in the garden and I'll pull some here and there that I'm like, I really don't want you here, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, but I have left it because I did want to see if I could get red admirals, but I got something else entirely. So yeah, that would be neat
1: to see if you can figure it out. Yeah.
0: Um. So I guess on kind of on that topic, I mean, we talked about monarchs and the milkweed and I guess I've just been noticing a definite like pollinator bias so everybody's yes save the save the monarchs save the honeybees I mean sometimes I see people excited about black swallowtails but you get anything else eating any other plant and it's kill it kill it kill it that's how it seems to be whether you're an organic or just a conventional gardener so yeah I, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to change that narrative and Sometimes I, I usually restrain myself from saying anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, um, that's okay. So. Okay, so with the honeybee issue, um, yeah, the the dominant um, s- save the bees life and be a honeybee keeper. And I think that's been a really tough. And I wrote an article early this year how to really save the bees. And I was really concerned about it. I didn't want it to sound like um, honeybees. You know, they they are an introduced species from Europe, and they're basically a domesticated animal now. Important mm-hmm. um, uh, in general, they deserve you know their own. They deserve, I believe like any other animal. But at the same time, as you know, bees by getting a honeybee hive is else because honeybee so the bees in your backyard and um and, and so it's much better to be a wild beekeeper. And so that's how I talk about it. And. I- um, oh, are we lost again? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I don't
0: yeah, it may be like Wi-Fi fading in and out or something.
1: Yeah, mine mine is okay here, but um do you want to try it again? Or do you can you edit this or
0: yeah, I can edit, but I think if you want to just back up a little bit and talk okay. about the honeybees, I think that would be okay.
1: Okay, start over with that. Yeah. Okay. Uh so So yeah, a lot of times the the dominant reframe for saving the bees is save the bees, get a honeybee hive, but I really encourage people instead to be a wild beekeeper. And when I've really written out the details as to why, and I've presented it in my talks, I've been surprised by how um, receptive people are to it. I mean, I try to be very sensitive to the fact that honeybees are important pollinators. They're Animals deserving of of good treatment in their own right, but um, but there are so many aspects of focusing on them exclusively that could be to the detriment of our native bees because we have four thousand native bee species, or nearly four thousand native bee species, and most of them, none of them, nest in hives, as you know, and most mm-hmm. of them, seventy percent of them, are in the ground, and thirty percent of them are in twigs and logs and um, and other cavities and so if we're not planting for them and not cultivating for them and leaving spaces for them to nest then um then we're not really helping to save the bees at all so uh so to your question about how do you kind of um, get people to understand that there's more to it i think constantly showing these pictures of like the mother leaf cutter bee taking out little leaf pieces from grapevine leaves and rosebush leaves and things like that to line her nest are really effective to, to show people these are who these animals are. You know, they have a, right. a whole life cycle onto their own and, and habits that are unlike any other creatures. And most people really appreciate things like that. They just haven't been exposed to them.
0: Right. I I think that's a good, definitely a good way. Show instead of tell maybe.
1: Yeah. And, 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 you know, the whole thing with buzz pollination and how bumblebees and sweat bees and I think some mining bees, carpenter bees can buzz pollinate and honeybees can't. And Mm -hmm. so it's really our native bees who are pollinating tomatoes and eggplants and blueberries and things like wild Senna, which then go on to make seeds that feed wild turkeys and other birds. Right. And I, had read about it. I had talked about it, but it wasn't until this summer I walked by a wild cinnamon plant on a really quiet morning, and I I heard this happening, and it was the coolest thing because it's a different sound from the flight of a bumblebee. Like the the flight is like, zzz, and then the the buzz pollinating, they stop at a flare and it's much more intense and higher pitched, and um and just to actually see it and hear it was was a, was an amazing thing. So I play that when I can um, for people and talks and stuff.
0: Yeah, I think this, the art of noticing and uh, paying attention is, is probably a key to some of this as well. I guess as you yeah. evolve as, as a gardener, you start noticing and paying attention and the curiosity factor, I guess. So.
1: Exactly. And it makes it so much fun. It's like... You learn something new every day about who shares the world with you. Yes. Um, so,
0: beyond, I guess, beyond pollinators, um, you also address a lot of your larger wildlife interactions, um, snakes and rabbits and deer and that kind of thing. Um, you know, as people, as we've had suburban expansion, so they clear cut and built all these tract homes, but you know, you get 20 or 30 years and the canopy starts filling back in and things come back and I think there's probably been a increase in wildlife interactions. What are the, some of the bigger ones you've seen? Um, not even maybe just for yourself or in the media or people talking about, but how, how have, how can you address some of these interactions humanely?
1: Yeah. So mainly people are upset that animals are eating their plants. Right. Right. So here it's, deer and rabbits uh and and groundhogs um -hmm. and it's cyclical (laughs) and i i what i like to do mainly is talk to people about the fact that we need a lot more plants for because we're not the only creatures who need plants both for our shelter and our nutrition and if you you know if you have a manicured lawn of 2 acres like the neighbors that I have around here uh, a lot of them have that and you're not leaving little forbs for the rabbits like dandelions and clovers and these little broadleaf plants that they love then they're going to go and look in your garden and they'll go there sometimes anyway but what we found is when we have all of this more natural sort of um, ground cover that's where the rabbits are. And so I actually had the neatest experience in New York when I went up and gave a talk there. Uh, Somebody I was, I was talking to said that she had recently relocated a rabbit for eating her greens. Mm -hmm. And actually her husband told me, and did you tell her that we just did that? And and she said, no, no, because I just learned from her talk that that's not a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the relocated animals, you could be separating them from their young and they, they don't know their new territory. They don't have that mental map anymore. They become easy prey and stuff. So, so I had talked about that. And so, um, so she was feeling bad. And I told her, don't worry about it. Like, we, we all do things we don't realize until we hear about. Right. Things. And a lot of people think that that's humane. And so um, the next morning we were in her garden and um, she, I was inside her husband was showing me his model airplanes and she, she stayed outside and she actually watched as a rabbit came right in front of her and started pulling a dandelion um, uh, stem from the bottom. Mm -hmm. And like, Pulled it from the bottom all the way in, seed head and all, whirling it around uh, the entire thing (laughs) into her mouth. And we got this; she got this great video, and she's letting me use it in my talks and stuff. And it transformed her. Now she's got cover—you know, wire covers over her greens, her raised beds, and and she's planted an eco lawn, which she had started already. But once she saw that, she was like, "Oh my gosh!" So they'll eat other things too, you know? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And it'll take the pressure off. And she started to decide to start planting more greens outside of the vegetable, bed, vegetable beds, just for the rabbits. And, Some
0: kind of sacrificial stuff. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right.
1: And that's what I, that's what we have started doing for deer. I mean, deer are really, really um, considered so such, such a problem here. And they're really not in our, at our place. I mean, um, I have different little things that I do that I rotate as t- in terms of repellents, like the so- soaps on the stakes. And I asked my husband to pee around the garden sometimes.
0: Yeah. yeah. I thought that was interesting in your book that you said yeah. that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it works. It works. Um, but the main thing is that we let when plants come up, when trees come up like suckering trees, like elder, or shrubs like elderberries or sassafras mm-hmm. or sumac, we let them. And we, you can do that in a small space because we have these areas of like 10 by 10 feet or 12 by 12 feet where we've got, This whole thing of suckering trees, there's probably at least 50 in that space. And that's what deer like to survive on in the winter, especially. And so they'll come and they'll prune it down and they'll leave some of the trees, but they'll prune others. And in that way, you know, that was just lawn before. It's just something that we mowed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why not leave that and let them. And so just a few weeks ago, we had a sumac coming up right near our clothesline. And my husband was like, I better move that. I said, don't worry about it. <laughs> <Take laughs> did you find it? it? Yeah, and they did. You know, so.
0: Um, what about snakes? I don't know how many snakes you have in the area. I think there's probably some timber rattlesnakes. Um, how do you, how, how do you do, address that in your yard? And I guess it's probably one of the ones that people are more fearful of and are probably quicker to dispatch rather than something like a rabbit. <laughs>
1: Yes, I I think you're right. Um I we we actually do have snakes, but we don't we don't see them a lot. We see a few each summer. Um we saw one on our roof last summer. Um oh. and sunning himself. Um th- they probably actually do go into our attic. We've we we've got to do some uh Uh, repair. Um, there's a little hole. I think they went in and got some mice in there. Mm -hmm. Um, so when we can make sure all the animals are out, we'll fix that. And, um, but, uh, in general, um, you know, I mean, the snakes are really helpful in your habitat because they, they do, um, they do provide natural rodent control and, um, they're, they're, they're so, um, they're so innocuous. People are afraid of them because they're different, you know, Be- mm-hmm. yeah, because they, they, they move so quickly. And, and in some areas of the country, I know there are some that, um, that are there are more, more snakes that are venomous than here. Um, right. but generally speaking, they, they don't want anything to do with us like most wild animals. And so I kind of get frustrated when I see advice to, um, piles so that there won't be any snakes because you're not only removing advice advocates too because they don't want people hurting snakes but you're also removing habitat for turtles and bees and so many other and birds for Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have your brush piles so I I sort of like to macro view with snakes too Um, but what what kind of questions Curious because i it's not something except for like an ir- irrational fear that I hear usually you cut out just a little bit what was the question questions based on sort of irrational fear rather than practical questions about snakes. I was just curious what kind you you deal with um, um, there
0: I don't really get too many questions it's mostly what I see and what I've you know experienced you know firsthand um, I definitely seem to see like they seem to be targeted on roads, you know, people don't avoid them. They will run right over them. Um, And then my neighbor, you know, he's killed a few snakes, whereas we've, and we have coral snakes in the area and we've had several in our yard. And so people will go for those um, for sure. And it's just, and other interactions, no matter what any snake is a bad snake, whether it's it's poisonous or or venomous or or not.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, and I think I mean it, it goes to the larger advice: to eat the insects that you you don't want, and and um and that you know there are there are giant I think you're cutting out, you know, again. Like <laughs> cutting out again. Oh, I, I understand the init of uh, of an of a strange animal you haven't seen before. You're not used to. Um, but I would say that it's sort of incumbent upon us to kind of question our fears, you know, and question our thing in the same way that we try to do when we're interacting with a stranger or, or you know, something else that's new in our lives. We, right. Yeah, we should. These are species that were always here. We're, we're much more powerful and they have a desire to stay away from us. Right. And, yeah, and so, and I do kind of helping people get to know these animals and them. Like I, sh- I shared a snake photo, and you, you can't help but his face looking at me, and he was tiny. You know, we put a quarter next to him, and I you don't know. I think sometimes those things help people see that these are individuals. They're not just some massive, you know, monsters coming to get you. <laughs> right, right, right. It's right. not a gang of snakes <laughs> coming up your front door. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> yes so we'll go back to your publisher approaching you to write this book and can you talk about that process a little bit um and then anything you do differently uh, now that the book's out
1: yeah so the the editorial director emailed me um in 2014 to ask if i'd be interested in writing the book based on my column that i write for all animals magazine and so I did the proposal, and um, and then I, I actually started writing probably about a year before I submitted it. So from research and interviews and writing and rewriting, it took me about a year. Mm-hmm. And um, I really, really thought long and hard the whole time about how to put it together. And so... There's a lot that I wouldn't do differently. Uh, there's always, as a writer, things that you think, oh, I could have said this or added that or said that differently. But overall, I know how much work and heart I put into it. One of the things that I w- wanted to do and couldn't do was um, the – and I've gotten a couple of comments about it. The index in the back of, of the plant names – um some people I think think that those are recommended plants, so they are native plants by region. Oh, I see yes, but I only yeah, you had mm-hmm. i I did those mainly because in that context of that type of book, which was a lot of narrative profiles, if I had added the scientific names within the narrative, it would have been so hard to read right, right, and so, but I wanted people to know what plants I was talking about because of course common names can be. Really confusing and applied mm-hmm. to so many different plants, um, so I wasn't. We weren't sure how to address that. But in the future, um, I, I'm not sure if if the book were more were, were larger and had more space, we might have had room to do it along the side or something like that. Um, the other thing is that it was. It's a relatively small book, and so I I profiled six different people and tried to get them in different regions of the country with different climates and different types of plants to show that these principles are universal and that they can be applied in any setting and by people with different means and everything. Um, but I would really like to uh, do have more profiles because there's so many different um places in this country that couldn't make it in there. And so I started doing those online, something I called Humane Gardening Heroes. And and my goal is to do a person in every state, at least one person. So between that and the book, I have 11. So I have 39 to go. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think that's one thing I appreciated of the book is that you, it wasn't particularly regional um, as some gardening books can be. Um, And then, yeah, I did, check out your blog and looked at the other people you've been profiling as well, which I thought was pretty interesting too. How did you find those people? Did they, you already kind of know them or just put some feelers out?
1: Yeah. So the, the people in the book and online, I just kind of look through as many resources I have as I have books and websites. And I sometimes have met people through just connecting on social media and the, what I really looked for as a priority were people who weren't selectively compassionate, who, 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 who understood the, the things that we've been talking about that, you know, it's not just about the monarch butterflies. It's, 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 it's also about the milkweed beetles who eat. Right. Who eat, yeah. And, and, um, and, and the rabbits and the deer and, and people who, who understand that it's a whole system and that, that there needs to be a macro view of this, not just a short term thinking applied to how we manage our outdoor spaces or in my case, try not to manage them as much. Um, (laughs) And so, and I also looked for people, I looked for people who maybe um, have different ways of going about it, maybe different aesthetics or, or, um, or, um, sort of different budgets. You know, I mm-hmm. have in the book somebody who's quite wealthy and then somebody who lives in a mobile home. And um, and in fact, I, I recently got an email from someone else who lives in a mobile home. I said, can you help us figure out how to do more of this in our community? And I think, you know, um, it's, it's really important to show that because, again, people are intimidated by the idea of of gardening of of any kind of gardening and this is less intimidating to them because they're like, you mean I can let some, some things grow?
0: (laughs) There's less, maybe a little less maintenance involved. Right. 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 Well, I think I could probably talk for (laughs) much more longer. Um, (laughs) but I guess is there any final advice you would give to people who are looking to kind of take this step into this more humane, holistic gardening and, um, and then kind of where they could follow you online, where to buy your book, maybe any other speaking tours you might be having.
1: Yeah. um, So I think tips for people who are getting started from a practical sense. Um, One of the most helpful things would be to, Uh, Go to some of these uh, databases, like Lady Bird Johnson, Wildflower Center, where you are. Um, Audubon has a good one now. Put in your zip code, and you can get so many resources, including plant lists that are local to your area of recommended native species. You know, joining your local native plant society or checking out their website. Um, And... um, availing yourself of some of these regional and local uh, resources, nature centers, all kinds of places are interested in this um, type of uh, gardening and cultivating and spreading the word. But as a philosophical um, sort of way to start, I would say understand that if you're even interested in this topic, you're already a person of compassion and to trust that part of yourself and listen to your instincts and – and question these terms like that you see associated with landscapes all the time, like pest and nuisance and damage and messy and weeds and things like that. And, and, and understanding that human gardening is, doesn't malign the world like that. It doesn't divide things into black and white and is a little bit more, um, introspective and, and, um, tries to understand the world from other species perspectives. And I think, if you start there, you can you really open up your whole world to new ideas out there. Um, so that would be where I would start from a philosophical standpoint.
0: I like it <laughs>
1: <laughs> and
0: uh your book is available pretty much Amazon, all that good stuff, right?
1: Yes, yeah, so and my book is yeah, and um, and my website is humanegardener.com, dot com, and then I have I'm on just at Humane Gardener on Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, and I love to hear from people. And I also one thing I was going to say is that um, when you start gardening this way, there's a guarantee that animals respond right, and and that humans will eventually. Respond to your neighbors. Some might not agree, but some, some, a lot of people, like I mentioned earlier, just don't know and get really fascinated when they walk by and they see the butterflies on your plants, and that initiates a conversation. So it's really about going beyond your backyard and your front yard to spreading the word. You know, um, right? Being an ambassador, right?
0: Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the the show and. Putting up with
1: the complications. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. All right.
0: Thank you, and uh, I hope you have a great day.
1: You too. Thanks. Man. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.